Hebrews chapter 6. Therefore, leaving the elementary teaching about the Christ, let us press on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of instruction about washings and laying on of hands, and the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And this we will do, if God permits. For in the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance, since they again crucified to themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. For ground that drinks the rain, which often falls on it and brings forth vegetation useful to those for whose sake it is also tilled, receives a blessing from God. But if it yields thorns and thistles, it is worthless and close to being cursed, and it ends up being burned. Verse 9. But beloved, we are convinced of better things concerning you, and things that accompany salvation, though we are speaking in this way. For God is not unjust so as to forget your work and the love which you have shown toward his name in having ministered and in still ministering to the saints. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you will not be sluggish but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. For when God made the promise to Abraham, since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply you. And so, having patiently waited, he obtained the promise. For men swear by one greater than themselves, and with them an oath given as confirmation is an end of every dispute. In the same way, God, desiring even more to show to the heirs of the promise the unchangeableness of his purpose, interposed with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast, and, and one which enters within the veil, where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. All right, here we go. Hebrews chapter 6. We got power, we got microphones, we got all kinds of good stuff, and God's word is good. Verse 1 starts with a warning about falling away from the faith. How many have heard the term backsliding? Not a good, favorable thing. If you haven't heard that term, you probably are backsliding. But falling away from the faith and here we have this warning. Therefore, leaving the elementary teachings about the Christ, let us press on to maturity. And that's the goal, amen? When you have children, you don't want them to stay immature. I mean, there's times as a parent you look at them and say, oh, I wish they would stay small forever. How many said that? And then you came to your senses and like, get out of my basement. Just move out. Pay your own bills. Come on, it's Wednesday night. Smile a little bit. But... You know, maturity is the goal here of every Christian. So it starts with a warning about falling away from the faith, and then it warns us, you know, you can't stay with the elementary teachings of Christ, although the basics are important. You've got to press on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith towards God or instruction about washing and laying on of hands and the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. So some of the, some of the things that are listed there are the, the basic teachings of Christianity. Now, 
there's there, this whole warning here is to show that, you know, when you backslide in such a way that you depart from the faith, uh, it's a hard road to get back. How many have known people who came to Christ, they got saved, they were excited, they're sitting in the front row, and then they disappear, and you never see them again? It's sad, isn't it? Yet, when you think about the parable of the, the sower and the seeds and the different soil types, you realize this sort of thing happens. But a person hears and accepts the gospel, and then he goes back into the world. When, when a person does that, they are playing Russian roulette with their soul. Some of them never come back. And that's a sad thing. Verse 1 is telling us, don't leave, you know, don't forsake the basics, but you've got to move past the basics, and your faith has to grow to the level where it's mature. Why? That's what keeps us in the faith is our maturity. So when every wind blows and hardship comes and persecution comes, we don't just say, I didn't sign up for this and quit. So it's that maturity that keeps us. Now, never stop doing the basics. Hello? Look at me. Never stop doing the basics. You never get, oh, I don't have to pray anymore. I don't have to read the word. I read the Bible already. I'm done. No, I've known people like that who, who lost their faith and were swept back into the world. Never stop doing the basics. Every day in the word, every day in prayer, all the time in church. Hello. But we've got to grow past the basics. It can't just be milk and you say, well, you know, can't we just accept Jesus and kind of just, you know, you know, enjoy being saved and kind of just stay babies and eat milk? No, living things grow. If something's alive, it grows. If something is not growing anymore, it, there's something wrong. You and I are going to grow until we die and go to be with Jesus, and then we're going to be completed, amen? But never stop growing, never stop doing the basics. Now, Verse 1b through 3 lists some of the foundational doctrines. I read through them quick, but the foundational doctrines are listed here. Repentance from dead works. That's an important one. Why? Because there's things we did in the world that produce nothing eternal. They were sinful, and we have to repent from them. So there's repentance from dead works, faith toward God. So there's that change where we used to walk by our senses, but now we walk by faith and not by our sight. So we have faith towards God washing and laying on of hands. He mentions those doctrines, resurrection of the dead, eternal judgment. So the basics. Now, verse 3 shows us what a good minister does. It says, and this we will do, what? Teach the basics. And this we will do if God permits. A good minister of the gospel will do two things. Number one, they will teach the basic foundational truths of the faith. Amen. As a pastor, at any given time, I have a complete diverse group of people standing in front of me listening to me preach. I got people who are seasoned saints who've been in the word for 50 years, and I got people who are, you know, mature Christians who've, you know, got solid faith and they're still growing, and then I got people who are lost, who are listening, who are trying to find salvation. As a preacher... Since the beginning, I was taught by my mentors in Bible school and some great men of God that always have something in your message for every part of the congregation. So there's going to be some evangelism. There's going to be an altar call. There's going to be deep truths there. We're going to dig a little deep. Some things might go over some people's heads, but other people catch them, amen? A good minister teaches the foundations and covers every part of the congregation. But a good preacher 
also does only what the Holy Spirit permits. And you, you see, that's an important thing there, that you see the, that little part there. And we will do this. Paul's saying, we're going to do this. We're going to teach the elementary things. We're going to bring you to maturity if God permits. That's an important thing. You might read right past that and think, oh, you know, a couple words, no big deal. No, we only do what God permits as ministers. Amen. People tell me, why don't you teach a series on this? And I'll say, when my boss tells me, I will. Why don't you teach a series? Why don't you go back to this book? Look, I don't get to choose. The Holy Spirit drops it in me. I don't ever want to be preaching my own thing. So we only do what God permits, and we always teach the basics and the foundations, and we cover every part of those who are listening to us. Verse 4 to 6 gets to the heart of the matter of how maturity prevents uh, the, the possibility of us falling away. And that's what we're trying to insulate ourselves here, that, you know, we, we insulate ourselves from backsliding, from falling away. Verse 4 through 6 says this, For in the case of those who have once been enlightened and have taste of the heavenly gift, have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance since they again crucified to themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. Wow. That's a heavy section of Scripture right there. Just the very fact that the word would say you can get to a place spiritually where you get so far away from God and so cold that it's impossible to come back. I don't know about you, but does that make you a little bit uncomfortable? It should. We're going to talk about why the writer of Hebrews said this, but he's trying to shake up the early church, and these statements should shake us up as well, that, you know, it is a dangerous matter to fall away. Some of the conditions uh, of a genuine believer are listed in 4 and 5. What? That they have been enlightened. So it's not just, you know, a casual Christian that, you know, maybe dropped into church one or two times and heard a message. No, this person's eyes have been opened. They've been enlightened. They've seen the truth, and that's an important distinction. They've tasted of the heavenly gift. What does that mean? They've tasted of salvation, okay? They've been partakers of the Holy Spirit. Think about that filled with the Holy Ghost, moving in the Holy Ghost, speaking in tongues. I've known people filled with the Holy Ghost, walking in the Spirit, speaking in tongues, and I've watched them backslide and never come back. Partakers of the Holy Spirit, tasted of the Word of God and the power of the age to come. When I read that description there, I cannot help but think of Judas Iscariot. That all of those things I just brought out of the text there or, or what he experienced. He saw Jesus do miracles. He saw blind eyes open. Tom, he saw lepers cleansed with his eyes. Yet, he tasted of, you know, the heavenly gifts. The Spirit moved uh, amongst him. Think about the fact that he sent them out two by two, and he gave them power. So he, ta he tasted of the power of the kingdom of heaven. And who, who knows, it doesn't say that Judas didn't minister and didn't heal people and didn't cast out devils like all the other disciples did. He saw, he tasted, he was used of God, yet somehow, some way, he decided to betray Jesus in light of all that for a pocket full of silver. Wow. 
Verse 6 makes the point that like Judas, who saw all these things and hardened his heart in the face of these things, uh, repentance was impossible for him to find. Did you ever look at the conclusion of Jesus's, I mean, Judas's life and just think, just repent? Why did he have to hang himself? Why did he? And, and, the, and the scripture says he went the way he was destined to go. It's quiet tonight. This is the word of God. He wants us to think, amen? It's not always feel good and goosebumps and happy clappy. Sometimes it really cuts to the bone. Judas walked with Jesus and saw things that you and I will never see with our eyes. Jesus do. But yet he betrayed him. And he went his way, and he winds up falling away, and that not finding a place of repentance to come back. The illustration that's used here is that to come back, you have to re-crucify Jesus to themselves. Look at verse 6 there. It says, and then have fallen away, like Judas, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance, since they again crucify themselves to the Son of God and put him to open shame. So, uh, you know, it's as if Jesus has to be crucified again just for them because they knew the truth and it, they openly shame Christ. And it, it's just a, a hard, almost impossible road uh, to come back from. And we've all known people who backslide and come back, amen? So we're going to talk about, you know why this statement is made here, but I want, I want to say some things to you. Every step backwards we take from the things of God is a dangerous step. You know, there are people who aren't here tonight that should be here tonight. In my spirit, I, I feel it. I know there's people who are, you know, they're out there and they should be in here. And they're not here tonight. And as a shepherd, I know what's going on in my flock sometimes. And, and I'm like, man, you really need to be here tonight. Where were you? Avoiding God. Every step backwards we take from the things of God is a dangerous step. Stepping back from devotions every day is dangerous. That Bible starts to collect dust, it's dangerous. Because the world will fill you if you don't let the Lord fill you. Every step we take back from prayer is dangerous. Every step we take back from church attendance, from involvement in the things of God is dangerous. Every step we take back from ministry and serving and giving and fellowship is dangerous. I want you to see it as you're stepping back towards a cliff and you can't tell <laughs> how far it is. Am I almost there? That's dangerous, isn't it? If I was just to walk backwards and close my eyes, uh, some of you would like to see that, right? I'd like to see it. Videotape it. I want you to get that picture in your mind. Dangerous steps that we take. We're not praying. We're not spending time in the word. We're not involved. And I know I'm preaching to the choir because you were lucky enough to be here tonight. But think about what I'm saying. Realizing these steps backward towards the cliff that we can't see how far we're from the edge. And it's a dangerous thing to do. It's playing with our souls and I understand God's keeping power, and I understand the, the assurance of salvation. I understand all of these things in Scripture that, you know, we're not to live in fear because he, he can keep us. But we've got to be careful and listen to what's being said here because this is also the Scripture. Verse 7 through 8 is a terrifying warning. It says, for the ground drinks the rain which often falls on it and brings forth vegetation useful to those for whose sake it is also tilled, receives a blessing from God. Listen, but if it yields thorns and thistles, 
It is worthless and close to being cursed, and it ends up being burned. Let's just take a look at that. This is just you know, a little illustration that is being used here, and it's, it's a warning about those who are reckless with their faith and prone to backsliding. Backsliders are like a tilled field that God has prepared. And if you know anything about, you've seen a plowed field, you know when the soil is broke, it's dark, it's rich, the nutrients are there, I mean, it's ready for the seed. And God takes the, uh, the saint, takes the Christian and breaks the soil of their life and they're ready to have something good planted in their lives. Now, when the field is open, the rains come down. And what does the field do? It drinks up the rain, amen? I want you to get this picture in your mind. It's a beautiful tilled field, and then the rains come, the farmer, it's like perfect timing. Here comes the rain, enriching the soil, getting it ready for the seed, and that's a picture of us. When we come to church, when we serve God, when we're in the things of God, when we're in the presence of God, like a tilled field, and God sends the rain down us. Now, for the ground drinks the rain which often falls on it. Did you hear that? It's not just a little rain. It's not just a once in a while rain. It says it often falls on it. That's how you and I are when we're in right relationship with God. God just keeps pouring out on us, pouring out. It often falls on us, amen? Every time we're in the house of God, every time we're in the presence of God, the rain is preparing the field of our hearts to produce. Now, spiritual growth and the production of fruit are the result of us drinking in the things of God. It says what? And it brings forth vegetation. There it is. Fruit production. Amen? We're open. We took in the rain. We're producing fruit. That's the right scenario for us to stay right with God so we can come to the place of maturity. Now, Understand this, we are to produce in the kingdom of God. Why? Because God is pouring into us. It's only natural that we produce. And when we do, it's a blessing to us and it's a blessing to God. It says it's useful to those for whose sake it is tilled. So this is a perfect picture of how it's supposed to be. Now, verse eight speaks of a field who's been broken, who's had the rain poured on it continually, who should have produced good Fruit, good vegetation, but something happened. But it yields thorns and thistles. What? Did you hear that? I mean, if a farmer goes through all that work, what happened? It never got seeded correctly. And instead of getting good seed to produce good fruit, it, it got bad seed. Now, whose fault is that? God or the person who, who just wouldn't allow God to plant good things in their heart? Certainly not God's fault if thorns and thistles grow. He certainly doesn't plant them in our lives. But yet, this is a picture of someone who chooses to backslide, and then the production of their life is not good fruit, even though they had the rain, they had the soil broken, you know, it was tilled properly, everything. But thorns and thistles are the output. And look what it says. It is close to being... It produces and yields thorns and thistles. It is worthless and close to being cursed. Wow. You getting this? It's graphic. When you, when you get underneath the hood and you look in there, look what it says. It's close to being cursed and it ends up being burned. Do you know if you're a farmer and you want to reclaim acreage, the best way to reclaim it is to have a controlled burn. And if you've ever seen it, they'll burn all the thorns, all the thistles, get those nitrates to go, uh, all the nitrogen and stuff. There's something happens when there's a burn that takes place that fertilizes the soil so new growth can come up. So God's saying, you know what? It's about to be judged. It's about to be cursed, but it's going to be burned. 
Sometimes God burns us, prunes us, cuts us back because the growth of what has come in our life is unhealthy and it's going to pull us away from him. And he wants to give one more chance to prepare that field to put good seed in it. That's what's being said here. And it is a graphic thing. And it is a warning here that should sober us up. God is warning us here. The field is our soul. And like... The, the preparation that has taken place there, if we don't allow good seed to produce good fruit in us, we become worthless to the kingdom of God. Now, those aren't my words. That's what the text is saying. I mean, I would never call someone worthless. It's quiet. But God says right here, when you're in this condition, you're worthless to the kingdom of God. I don't want to be dead wood in the kingdom of God. I want to be useful in the master's hands. Do you? Amen. Amen. So it's close to eternal judgment. It needs to be burned. It's in bad shape. So backsliding, falling away from God, not producing good things, even though God has poured good things into us, going astray, all of these things are very dangerous. Now, in verse 9, the author of Hebrews tells his audience, the church, two things, because this is to the church. He's not speaking to the world. He's speaking to the the church and the Jewish believers there that are having a hard time coming out of Judaism. He's trying to get their attention uh, not to go back to the old way. He says in verse 9, but beloved, we are convinced of better things concerning you and the things that accompany salvation, though we are speaking this way. Just take a look at that there. He tells his audience that that God wants better things for us. This is a possible scenario I just described to you. But God wants better things for us. God is not willing that any should perish. Will some perish? They will, but it wasn't God's idea. So our Heavenly Father wants better things for us than this. What? For us to not produce fruit, for us to fall away, for us to be useless to the kingdom of God. God is not willing that any should perish. He doesn't want us to fall away. He doesn't want us to backslide. He wants us to remember that he loves us and he has a plan for our lives. Amen. And this is the God who leaves the 99 to get the one. Come on, kind of like what we sung about tonight. Amen. God is relentless in getting us, amen? He's not going to just, you know, oh, well, I lost a couple, oh, well. No, this is the God who leaves the 99 to find that one lost sheep. So he wants better things for us, and the writer of Hebrews wants better things for the church. Uh, The the second thing that you're going to see here in verse 9 is what what was just shared here, this scenario, is is the extreme. And you got to listen to to the word choice phraseology here and how he says it. He says, but beloved, we are convinced of better things concerning you, listen, and things that accompany salvation, though we are speaking this way. What does he mean by that, though we are speaking this way? He means I just took it to the extreme to shake you up a little bit. This whole idea of backsliding, falling away, of, you know, becoming useless to the kingdom of God, of needing to be burned, that's the extreme, God's grace is so magnificent, it rarely comes to this, what we're talking about here tonight. But sometimes the scripture says things to the extreme, just wake us up and shake us up, because we easily fall asleep. Some of you just woke up when I clapped. So he says, though we are talking like this, what is he saying? This is an extreme thing. We're trying to get your attention 
Though we are speaking in this way, verse 10, God is patient with those who serve him and shows grace. See, look what he says, for God is not unjust. God's not up in heaven. You did great and you're going good for years and you, 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 you mess up and God's like, you're done. I'm cutting you off. For God is not unjust so as to forget your work and the love which you have shown towards his name in having ministered and is still ministering to the saints. So God sees and he knows what we do and he knows, you know, we need patience, lots of patience. How many people need patience out there? Let me raise two hands. Some of you are not raising any hands, filthy liar. Going to interview your spouse. Oh, they need patience. God is patient with us. He's patient with those who serve him. He's gracious to those who serve because he sees our sacrifice and he knows that we're sheep. Sometimes we, we forget that we're sheep. Sheep are not the smartest animals. But that's what the word compares us to. Isaiah 53, 6 says, all of us, say all of us. All of us like sheep have gone astray each of us has turned his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of all of us to fall on him. Isn't that a beautiful thing? So it's an extreme thing that's being said here. It's designed to shake us up, and we need to see it for what it is. It's a wake-up call for us to do the basics and continue in God, and when that rain pours on us to have the heart to produce good things. Why? Because we have the sheep nature that wants to go astray. Thank God for his grace. Do you know if it wasn't for his grace, all of us would be cut off and disqualified? Big time. I mean, none of us have made it. I don't know about you. It, it takes me like 10, 15 times to learn some lessons. And God's probably going up there. More like 50, kid. But, you know, like, I know, I, oh, I didn't get that right the first time. And then I got to, you know, sometimes you got to wait for another opportunity. And then it comes in, man, I didn't get it right that time. And, you know, we should be introspective enough to look into our situations and let the Lord reveal our hearts to ourselves. Why? Because there's a whole lot of people, you know, who are backslidden who don't even know they're backslidden. Well, I don't go to church anymore. Well, I don't, you know read the word anymore. Well, I don't serve anymore, but, you know, I'm still, you know, I still, you know, I'm a Christian. Not everyone who cries, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, the word says. There's a lot of people who say they're Christians, and they're not Christians. I know that's sobering. I know it's not something we like to think about, but the truth is we've got to examine our souls and make sure we're in the faith. Now, verse 11 and 12 Give us two things that will insulate us from backsliding. Uh, besides pushing past, you know, being new and immature into maturity, these two things, that's a given. We've got to grow. Remember, we've got to become mature. When you're a baby, you're easily deceived. You're easily sucked away. But these two things here in verse 11 and 12 are going to help us and insulate us from backsliding. And it says here, and we desire that each of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope unto the end, so that you will not be sluggish, but imitators of those through faith and patience inherit the promise. For when God made the promise to Abraham, since he could not swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply you. And so having patiently waited, he obtained the promise. Let's take a look at that there. So 
here are the two things that will keep us from backsliding. Number one, a, we need to embrace diligence and reject laziness. Now, this might seem like a basic, right? But you, there's a lot of people who are not self-disciplined. Don't raise your hand. So, a lot of us, most of us have a problem with self-discipline, amen? It's just human nature. So if we're going to insulate ourselves from falling away from the faith and have all of these horrible things that have been described here happen, that we have to, you know, embrace diligence and uh, reject laziness. Now, if we're not diligent in the basics, we'll become lazy. It's as certain as gravity because it's human nature. Proverbs has a lot to say about the sluggard. Did you hear the mention of sluggishness? I encourage you to do a study in Proverbs about the sluggard because nothing comes, nothing good comes from laziness. So he's saying, you know, you, you, you got to push that lazy spirit off. You've got to become diligent in the things of God, and that will insulate you from backsliding. Number two, uh, a humility that shows us that allows us to imitate those who have gone before us. See, they give an example here to what? Imitate Abraham. What did Abraham do? He got a promise, and then he had to wait till he was almost 100 years old before God kept the promise. Does Does that take diligence? Yeah, does that take perseverance? Does that take faith? It does, and those are the things that insulate us and bring us to maturity. You know, we need to have a heart to imitate those who have gone before us, and that requires humility. Hebrews 12 talks about a great cloud of witnesses, not Jehovah's Witnesses, but witnesses. What does he mean by that? We're gonna, when we get to Hebrews 12, we'll, we'll dissect that very thoroughly, but tonight I want you to know that there's a whole bunch of people who went before us who ran a good race and finished and heard Jesus say, well done, good and faithful servant. There's a lot of Old Testament prophets and David and all these people that they ran a good race and they ran the course and and they were, were accepted into the beloved after Jesus liberated them. So understand something here. We need to have the humility to learn from those who have gone before us. Those who have gone before us model faith and patience. Here the example is Abraham. He says, be imitators of those through faith and patience inherit the promise. Do we imitate the faith and the perseverance and the patience and the discipline and the diligence of those who are in Scripture? It's foolish and arrogant to think that, you know, Well, I don't need to follow anybody's lead. I can just figure this all out myself. It's a foolish generation that doesn't want to learn from its fathers. And I've seen generation after generation that's like, ah, you know, we don't need to learn from you. We don't need, we'll figure it out ourselves. We're more advanced and we're more technological. You can't even program the, you know, you, you don't know what you're doing, old man. The arrogance and the hubris of some of the people I've seen coming up in the generation that think they have nothing to learn from the generation's past. It's destructive, and it's deceptive. And some people are going to miss it because in their pride and their arrogance, they pushed God away. 
So we need the humility to imitate those. I'm thankful for those who have gone before me. I'm thankful for those who have walked the faith. I'm thankful for the saints that I've seen live the word out and preach the word. And all of these things, they should inspire us and they should uh, allow us to have a, a model to imitate. Of course, we imitate Jesus as our, our main model, but there are those who have gone before us that we need to take a good look at. Abraham is one of them. He's a perfect example. And so having patiently waited, he obtained the promise. Verse 16 through 18, men swore by God's name to end disputes. They would swear an oath and all of this. And then they say, well, you know, he swore to the highest thing that you could. And uh, it shows the difference where, you know, men swear an oath to God, but God had no one to swear by, so he swore by his own name. Pretty cool, isn't it? God's like, well, there's no one higher than me. I said it. So, ta-da. God swore by his own name. The heirs of the promise, that's us. That is the purpose for his word towards us, and it's his promise towards us. It's steadfast. It's unchangeable. His keeping power. We can totally trust God today. And I know that sounds like, it almost sounds like a juvenile statement to make. Well, we can totally trust God because, you know, we've heard things like that, but it takes a lifetime many times to work the kinks out before we get to the place where, yeah, I totally trust you. Amen. I'm not there yet. I hope you're progressing towards it. There's times I get scared. There's times I get mad. There's times I don't understand. Anybody else? You're just looking at me like you're so holy tonight. The truth is that, you know, we, we need to learn to trust him. Why? Because there's none higher than him. He had to swear by his own name that he would keep the promise. And he kept his promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He kept his promise to Israel. Even in Israel's backslidden state right now, God still maintains his covenants with them. The Abrahamic covenant is still in full effect. I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. You see it in the nations. When they rise against Israel, all they do is bring curses upon on themselves <laughs> we got a governor right now who's telling the jews they can't go to the synagogue right. Woo! wouldn't want to be him yeah. you know sometimes the people of god have to really examine our hearts and just say, you know what, God, do we really trust you? Do we really, you know, are we, are we more afraid of this or afraid of that? Are we afraid of, you know, decrees and rules and executive orders and, and viruses? The Bible says it's appointed once to man to die and then the judgment. No virus is going to take me out before my time, I got to tell you. When I'm done and God's done with me, he's going to take me out. Do we use wisdom? Absolutely. But we don't live in fear. So humility allows us to follow those who have gone before us. Uh, God squares by himself. He's faithful. We can trust him. He never breaks his vows. He never breaks his covenants. He never lies. You and I can trust him. If he said he can keep us in the palm of his hand, we can trust him. We don't have to live in fear. Verse 18 tells us, 
to be encouraged and to take hold of the hope that is set before us. Let's look at the last two verses, 18 and 19. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, that's an unchangeable thing. God won't wake up tomorrow and say, I'm just going to start lying and I'm going to deceive people. Not going to happen. We who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope that is set before us. Uh, This hope we have is the anchor of our soul, a hope both sure and steadfast, one which enters within the veil where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Now, there was a lot in those two verses, but, you know, what I want you to see here is that the pendulum has swung in this chapter. He went to the extreme of kind of scaring the heck out of people, saying, you know, you could backslide and find repentance impossible, and you could just go away from God. Now he swings to the other extreme and says here, you know what, but the keeping power of God and the grace of God and the fact that God never lies and always keeps his word and always honors his covenants, and he has the power to keep us in his hand, you should rest in that. Amen? We're swinging from one extreme to the other here. Thank God for grace, amen? But let's not get so focused on grace that we don't realize that our enemy is playing for real with real, he, he wants to kill us. He wants to take us out. He, he wants us to walk away from God so we lose the, the, the salvation that God has so graciously given us. Uh, to take hold of the hope that is set before us, verse 19 tells us exactly how to take hold of that hope that Jesus is the rock and the anchor of our soul. So our hope has to rest in Christ, amen? It's not that I went to church, I was a giver. You know, do you see my tithing record? You know, I read the Bible 72 times. That's not what we're gonna put our hope in, amen? Those are good things, but those things don't save you. There's a whole lot of religious people out there that that's what their trust is in, their good works and how they were good Christians and they went to church out of religious obligation. But did they ever know Jesus? Will he say, I never knew you. Depart from me. Ugh. Our hope is in Christ. Jesus, the rock and the anchor of our souls. It's all about Jesus. It's all about having a relationship with him. It's all about finding what pleases the Lord and keeping his commandments. It's all about Jesus. That hope we have, that we could have intimacy with the Father. Look what it says. Jesus uh, entered within the veil. What does that mean? We're talking about the veil into the most holy place, the holy of holies, when Jesus died and he said it was finished. What, the ground shook, there was earthquakes, the tombs opened, and the veil was torn in two in the holy of holies. Why? Because now we can have intimacy with the Father because the power of sin had been broken. So this is what this is talking about, when Jesus entered the veil. He's saying what? He's our hope. He's the anchor of our soul. He's the one who made intimacy with the Father possible by breaking the back of sin. He's the firstborn from the dead. I mean, check this out there. We have this hope, the anchor of our soul. He's steadfast, the one who enters within the veil. It's torn. When Jesus has entered as a forerunner, what does that mean? He's a prototype of salvation. Jesus died, but he didn't stay in the tomb. He rose again, and he went to be with the Father, a prototype for everyone who believes. When you and I die, we're not staying in the ground. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. He is the firstborn of the dead. Where Jesus has entered as a forerunner, he's a prototype for us. 
having become a high priest, and remember we said the high priest was very significant and important to the Jewish mindset, and it should be significant and important to us as grafted in Gentiles, that the high priest is the one who makes intercession for us. He connects us to God. He offers the proper sacrifice, and Jesus did all that for us. We have this high priest who's a forerunner according to the order of Melchizedek. So remember we said he wasn't in the order of Aaron. Jesus was not in the human priestly line of Aaron. He was in a different one, a divine line, Melchizedek, amen? The order. So he is a High priest above all high priests, who is the anchor of our soul, who has allowed us to have this gift of salvation, have intimacy with the Father, and have an assurance that he's able to keep us from backsliding until that day he can present us a glorious church. Amen? Well, that's all I got. So let's pray. Father, we just thank you tonight for... Hebrews, and we thank you, Lord, for the treasures and the pearls and the gems that you've hidden in the text. Holy Spirit, I pray that you've gotten those to us, and we've, we've understood them, and you've opened the eyes of our understanding and illuminated truth to us tonight. Father, I pray everyone within the sound of my voice will take home some of these treasures, Lord, tucked in their hearts. Father, help us to live right, never to move past the basics, but to come to the place of maturity so we'll be insulated from deception and from being picked off by the enemy. Father, help us tonight to to avoid uh, behaviors and, and hardening of the heart that facilitates backsliding. Father, let the rain pour on the good soil of our hearts. God, plow up our fallow ground and produce fruit in us. God, where there's thorns and thistles, Give us repentance, burn up those things, and allow us to produce good fruit. I ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Give him praise.